It's my secret ambition to make sure the uh, pages in your Bible, Romans 8, are falling out by the time I get to chapter 16. I just want to put that out there, my secret ambition, that in your Bible you have a well-worn path to the book of Romans. And so to that end, I invite you to turn with me yet again to the book of Romans, and in particular, the 8th chapter. As you're doing so, I want to share a little statement with you uh, from Peter's first epistle. Toward the end of the chapter, he's speaking of the gospel and the preaching of the good news. And then he makes a statement which fascinated me when I was younger, but never really gave much thought to it. Uh, A statement to this effect, when speaking of the good news, salvation, he tells us that these are things into which the angels long to look. So those of you familiar with the Bible, familiar with 1 Peter, do you recall that phrase? He's speaking of the gospel, proclamation of the good news, salvation, and then he makes this statement, almost a throwaway statement, into these things, into things the angels long to look. Um, That little phrase, to look, it's an interesting verb. We find it elsewhere in the New Testament. We find it, for example, when Peter arrived at the empty tomb. He stooped to look into the tomb. It's the verb he then actually uses in his first epistle. To describe this activity whereby the angels stoop, they bend low to look into salvation, almost like they are investigating the gospel. Uh, He says, he says, not only is it that they look into, stoop low to gaze upon, but they long to look into these things. In other words, it's a desire. Uh, You mow the lawn some Saturday afternoon in 90 degree weather. And at the end of it, you have a thirst that must be quenched. You long, you yearn, you desire for something that will quench your thirst. That is what Peter is conveying to us. That the angels have, they possess an earnest desire, longing to look into, investigate the gospel. Now, I find that fascinating for at least a couple of reasons. I'm going to limit myself to a couple of reasons. Uh, The first reason I find that fascinating is this. Um, You think of what the angels see at present. They have a far better perspective than we do, don't we? They are privy in heaven, heaven to a localized manifestation of the glory of God. Uh, Something we can only dream about. Spectacular. Yet that being the case, having available to them what is available to them, they still long to look into salvation. Second thing, the reason why that's interesting is this. They have no personal interest in salvation. Gospel has nothing to do with them. Right? Yes, I'm right. You read 1 Timothy, uh, the first chapter. Uh, There, the Apostle Paul speaks of the elect angels. 
to differentiate them from whom? The non-elect angels. Who were the non-elect angels? They were those who followed, chose to follow Lucifer in his rebellion against God. God made no provision for their salvation. But God did preserve the elect angels from falling. So they are preserved and owe that to God's grace. But they are not saved. The gospel by which we are saved does not concern the angelic beings. It has nothing to do with them. So you put those two things together. One, they have no personal interest in the gospel. Two, they're in heaven where they behold a revelation, a manifestation of the glory of God. But all that said, they long, they have this earnest desire to look into, gaze upon, investigate the gospel. Why? Because they love their creator. And they realize what? That in the gospel, their creator is revealed in a way unlike he is revealed in any other way. That in the gospel, they behold the glory and the majesty and the wonder of their God, their creator. Paul hints at that in his epistle to the Ephesians. He tells us that now, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God has been made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so as the angels gaze upon the gospel and investigate and probe it and even learn in their understanding, they do so with this end in view that they might behold the glory of God. Yes, the glory of his wisdom. Yes, the glory of his power. But the glory of his grace. Because here in the gospel do we find and here alone, the fullness of the grace of God. Now, I was thinking about that, plus a few other things, this past week. And I found myself asking myself a very simple question. Well, Stephen, if these elect angels who have no personal interest in the gospel long to look into the things of salvation... How much I, who am nothing apart from the gospel, should long to look into the things of salvation and better understand them, better comprehend them, so that I might behold the glory and the majesty of my God. Why do I say all that? I say all that for a very simple reason, because that's what we're trying to do in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. In verses 28 through 30, we behold the gospel. We behold God's plan of salvation, in particular, from his vantage point. That is what God does in his people. And as we unpack this gospel, unpack this plan of salvation, we behold the fullness of his glory. And so that is what we are aspiring to. That is what we are longing like the angelic beings to look into. That we might satisfy our minds and our hearts in God's plan of salvation. So to that end. Follow along as I read once again in Romans 8, beginning in the 28th verse. And we know, stop there. 
It is the introduction to his third argument. He introduces his theme back in verse 17, suffering. And what he is doing now is giving three helps to Christians, God's adopted children, whereby they can be strengthened in the midst of suffering. Verse 18, for I consider, there he speaks of the hope of glory all the way through to verse 25. Verse 26, likewise the Spirit. There he refers to the power of prayer through to verse 27. Now in verse 28, and we know he introduces a third help, the sovereignty of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what purpose is that? It tells us in the verses 29 and 30. For those, notice the five verbs, those whom he foreknew, there's the first. He also predestined, there's the second, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called, there's the third verb. And those whom he called, he also justified. Yes, that's number four. And those whom he justified, here we go, we top it all off with number five. He also glorified. Five unbreakable keys or links in a chain. God foreknew his people. God predestined his people. God called his people. God justified his people. And God glorified his people. In God's plan of salvation, I discover that my salvation rests entirely upon the sovereign grace of God. And this is a cause unlike any other of worship and adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Because here I enter into the very inner sanctum when it comes to the character of God that he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy apart from anything I have ever done or anything I could ever do. Again, five unbreakable. I want to say, say it with me, but I won't. Five unbreakable links in the golden chain of salvation. Last Sunday, we began at the end. With number five, he glorified us. What does that mean? I summed it up in three statements. Here we go. Briefly, statement number one, we will see God. We will see him. We will behold a physical manifestation of his glory, the radiance of his glory in the person of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see God. Statement number two. God will glorify us or make us spiritually glorious. He will perfect our souls. We will be like the Lord Jesus, conformed to his likeness in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And statement number three, God will make us physically glorious. It's a resurrection. It is a promised physical body moved beyond the realm, the consequences of sin and decay and corruption. And we will be forever with the Lord. If you're still not certain of it, I want you just to hear these words out of John 17. The prayer of the Lord Jesus. 
And please understand this. The father always answers his son's prayer. Father, I desire. It's a strong desire. It's not wishful thinking. It's actually a will. I will. I will. That they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. And the Father will answer that prayer. Glorification, the fifth and final link in the chain, God's plan of salvation. We, we can't be guilty of overemphasizing it. Glory, the future. Especially in our day. You know, I'm inclined to think that future glory has fallen on hard times when it comes to our perspective of things, when it even comes to what occupies our thoughts. Thoughts. There are, there are innumerable factors, reasons contributing to that. Uh, let me just, as they come to me, let me just suggest a few. The first is this. We are governed far too much by sense, right? The material. And we live in the world of the material. That's fine. But at times, we're so governed by what we can see and touch that what is unseen just becomes what? Unreal. Unreal to us. And it does not weigh upon us as it should. I think another factor at play is simply this. that, um, And I know I'm guilty of this a bit. When it comes to end times, glory, I've become a little cynical because I'm, down, I'm sick and tired of rapture fever. I really am. I'm sick and tired of the nonsense that has been spewed forth over the last 50, 60 years, right? When it comes to rapture fever. And it's almost made a cynic out of me. And my cynicism then can boil over and color and almost downplay a truth that should actually hold preeminence in, in my perspective and in my thinking. Oh, and there's so many other factors at play. And so, and so it, it is so needful for us. To, to put this truth back where it belongs, in our thinking, in our yearning, in our longing, yes, in our worldview, in our perspective. And, and, and so I just, I just want to just throw out there again, if you like, the, the, just the, 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 the climax to all that we were pondering last Sunday, a thought, a verse, which sums it up so wonderfully, so beautifully, and I'm going to try to bring it up on the screen behind me. By hitting that key. There it is. And the first thing I want you to notice is where this verse is found. These verses. Book of Job. What could Job teach us about end times? What could Job possibly have? What could some guy who lived in the Old Testament, probably the days of Abraham, who spent his days with sheep. I don't know if he was literate, semi-illiterate, but certainly didn't have the revelation we have in scriptures. What could he teach us about perspective and worldview? Well, you just look. You just look at what Job declares here. I know. I know. It's an absolute certainty. That my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. 
That is fantastic. Memorize those verses. Make them your daily meditation. Notice, firstly, four things that are coming. And Job knew they were coming. A coming Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. He had the promise back in Genesis 3.15. The first promise concerning a Savior. He expected a Savior. Notice, secondly, a coming reckoning. At last, he will stand upon the earth. Judgment is coming. There is going, he is going to hold us accountable. There will be an eternal separation made between the just and the unjust. Notice, thirdly, a coming resurrection. After my skin, me, my body, my flesh has been thus destroyed, I die. Yet in my flesh, it's a resurrection if ever I've heard one, I shall see God. Notice, fourthly, a coming reward, whom I shall see from myself. I will see him personally, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Four expectations, comings. And notice, lastly, a present response. Oh, if all that is true, given that all that is true, my heart paints within me. Not from exhaustion. Not from weariness. From what? Like the angels. Longing. Yearning. For his coming. Redeemer. Hear this quickly. We will see God. He will make us spiritually glorious. And he will make us physically glorious. These are the articles. Right here summed up in those four. Four comings. These are the four articles. Of our faith. That must constitute the most important thing in our lives. Seek ye first. It's a commandment. What? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. These are the articles of faith that must occupy our attention as the most important thing in life. When they do. Oh, this perspective will make our love more fervent. It will make our hope more stable. It will make our faith more active. It will make our comfort more constant. It will make our obedience more uniform. And it will make our resolve more steadfast. The hope of glory. Glorification. The fifth link in the chain. Here's the question. Who will God glorify? Paul tells us in the text. He glorifies whom? Those whom he justified. And so we move backwards in this link to this fourth link in this chain. Justification. Most of you have been here accompanying me during this series right back from chapter 1 verse 1. You know that a key theme, subject, motif in this epistle is what? Justification. It is something I have spoken of and referred to repeatedly over and over again. And what I want to do for us this morning is try to take everything I have said and condense it to seven statements. As we opened in worship this morning, and as we were singing, we recited out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is justification? You all declared it. 
You go back and you look up that answer later and you will find each of these seven condensed statements packed into that answer to that question out of the confession, that catechism, what is justification. I want to go through these quickly with you. I'm going to bring each of them up on the screen with a corresponding reference, very quick reference that we'll go to out of Romans. Here we go, one through seven, beginning with number one. There it is. Is it up? Yes. Justification is a change in our legal status. It is a change in our legal, 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 underline it, legal status. Just look, for example, we're in the eighth chapter, so no need to go anywhere but right back to the first verse where Paul proclaims, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word now implies what? That at one time, Outside of Christ, there was condemnation. I mean, that's just obvious, isn't, isn't it? And so Paul is making it clear that, look, you have a group of people over here who are outside of Christ. You have a group of people over here who are in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ are condemned. They're under condemnation. Those who are in Christ, however, for them, there is therefore now no condemnation. So many trip here. So many stumble here. Why? Because the average person just kind of walking out there, whether, whether in a church identifying themselves as evangelical or not, the average Joe out there has this kind of mindset. Look, I'm living my life. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe there's a judgment coming. But that judgment is something future, right? A judgment's going to come at the end, and it's based on sort of how this life has been lived and how this life is going. It's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible's point is this, that those who are outside of Christ are actually judged already. They're already condemned. Three strikes, you're out. Strike number one was imputed sin. We read of it at the end of Romans chapter five, that we are one with Adam. And when Adam sinned, as far as God is concerned, we sinned with him, right? And the result was what? Death, condemnation. That's strike number one. Strike number two is original sin. You read of it in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Why? Because by nature, we are sinful, even conceived in the womb. We already have a heart inclined to sin. I used the expression months ago. Here it is again. We are by nature selfaholics. We are lovers of self far more than we love God. Our love of self eclipses any notion we have when it comes to God or love for him or serving him or obeying him. That is the way we are wired. That is original sin. Strike two. Strike three is this, actual sin. That at some point, probably very young, when we were, probably before we were one, years of age, one year of age, one year old, we did something in terms of expressing our frustration, throwing our pablum across the room or a custard or whatever it was we were eating, just venting our frustration, our anger somehow. And in that moment, we sinned. That is actual sin. Strike three, guess what? You're out. We're already condemned. Actual sin, original sin, and imputed sin. Condemned in the sight of God. If you're an unbeliever, please understand, understand. You're not waiting for the judgment day for God to determine what to do with you. 
No, 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 my friend. You are simply waiting for the day for God to do to you what he has already determined. You are condemned already. You're simply waiting for the sentence to be carried out. Justification is what, though? It is a change in our legal status, whereby God changes the verdict from guilty to innocent. And he changes the sentence from death to life. That's the first statement. Second statement is this. God justifies us as a free gift. Oxymoron, free gift. If it's a gift, why do you need to insert the word free? Because we still don't get it. It is a free gift. Look at what Paul says back in chapter 3. It's the statement in verse 24 that I'm after. But I'll start reading at at the beginning of verse 23. For all have sinned. Yes, original sin, imputed sin, actual sin. Here's our condition. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. What does that mean? The Lord Jesus uses the same word in an interesting fashion in John 15, where he declares, they hated me. They hated me as a gift. How does he word it? It's the same language in the Greek, but how does it word it in the English? They hated me without a cause. Are you getting it? That is a free gift. It is without a cause. We give gifts to our children on their birthday. Well, there's a cause. It's their birthday, right? Give a gift to our spouse when it's our anniversary. Well, there's a cause. It's the anniversary, and they're the object of our love. Oh, put it all away from your mind. When it comes to the gift of justification, it is a free gift, meaning what? There is no cause. Am I going slowly enough? There is no, make eye contact, folks, no cause in you. You can search for it for a million years, times a million, and you will never find the least residual reason as to why God should justify you. There isn't one. It is without a cause. We are sinners. We are riddled with sin. We are rebels by nature, by posture, by conduct. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But this is a wonder of wonders. God justifies us as a free gift. Moving on. Number three. God justifies us. And I have stressed this coming up on seven years I have stressed this time and again, and, and, and as I was reflecting on it this past week, I said, Stephen, is there possibly some way you can make this point in language in which you've never stated it before? And this is, the, this is the phrase I came up with. You correct me if I have used this phrase before, but I can't recall using this phrase. Here it is. God justifies us by treating us as if we did what Christ did. That's great. That's an understatement. 
It's really great. God treats us, justifies us by treating us as if we did what Christ did. Go back to chapter 5, just briefly, verses 18 and 19. Here, Paul is comparing Adam and Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, led to condemnation. There you have it, right? Imputation, sin imputed, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, that's the Lord Jesus, leads to justification in life for all men. For, verse 19, as by the one man's, that's Adam, disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's, this is Christ, obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is Paul saying? I think I've summed it up well in that statement right there on the screen behind me. God justifies us by treating us as if we did what Christ did. Now, how is that possible? We can't understand it apart from the word imputation. Imputation. To impute means to count. It means to reckon. It means to take something and reckon it, count it, impute it to someone else. Are you with me? Imputation. It's a small word, but it is an exceedingly important and an exceedingly wonderful word. Because when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, as we stand before God, he makes these two demands of us. And they are unchangeable demands. They do not change. They are the revelation of his righteousness. And God is just. He just can't change our legal status simply because he wants to. He needs to remain just. So how's he going to do this? Because he's made this, these two demands of us. He's demanded, firstly, our perfect obedience. Here's the law. You must obey it perfectly. And he has demanded, secondly, of us a penalty to be paid because we have failed to obey him. Do you understand that? So demand number one, a duty. We must obey him perfectly. Demand number two, a penalty. Death, condemnation. Why? Because we've broken his law. Oh, imputation. He treats us, he justifies us by treating us as if we did what Christ did. Christ died upon Calvary's cross bearing God's condemnation. Right? I made one with the Lord Jesus. God now treats me as if I did what Christ did. Did, did. I died judicially. I was crucified. I was there in the mind of God because I was one with his son and my sin was imputed to him. And God dealt with his son as if he had lived and done what I had done. And he bears the penalty in full. And now in the judicial reckoning of God, God treats me as if I did what Christ did. Therefore, the penalty of my sin is paid. Therefore, God is willing to forgive me. But not only that, the Lord Jesus lived that perfect life, culminating his death upon Calvary's cross. And because I made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, again, God treats me as if I did what Christ did, which is what? Fulfilled the law perfectly. He obeyed from beginning to end. No original sin, no, no imputed sin, no actual sin. 
a perfect life lived in submission to the will and the law of God. And because I am now one with him, God treats me as if I did it. And I am justified in the sight of God. Oh, God justifies us by treating us as if we did what Christ did. James White notes this. Impute is a tiny word. But the sin-wearied soul who realizes what it really means to, to find its true source of hope and constant encouragement in that word. Oh, how it brings satisfaction, how it brings joy, how it brings hope to the sin-wearied soul who finds their satisfaction, finds all cause for their standing in God's sight and acceptance with God, resting on that tiny little word, impute, that God deals with me as if I did what Christ did. Fourth point is this. Faith is the hand of the soul by which we receive Christ. That's all faith is. It's all about what God has done in the Lord Jesus. And faith is simply the instrument by which I receive the Lord Jesus. You know, back in my younger days, we used to play a lot of pond hockey. And, uh, you know, 12 years of age, we'd carry our, our wooden sticks and the skates on the sticks to school. And there was a big cupboard at the back of the classroom. We'd just throw them all in there. And uh, after school, straight to the pond. Well, we never really went near the pond until getting close to Christmas. Right? Because what? You wanted to make sure the pond was frozen. We'd ask our dads. We'd ask Mr. West, our sixth grade teacher. You think it's frozen? And off we'd go to the pond and we would wander out believing that the ice could support us. Now please, please understand where I'm going here. The ice did not support us because we believed. Did you hear me? Some of you need to hear this. The ice did not support us because we believed. The ice supported us because it was 12 inches thick. It was frozen. My friend, your faith does not save you. You are justified by faith, but faith is not the cause. Faith is not the reason God justifies you. You are not justified because of your faith. You're justified because of the grace of God. And you simply receive the Lord Jesus through faith. It is the instrument justified by faith, meaning justified through faith. It is simply the instrument by which we receive this free gift. It is the hand of the soul by which we receive, we take unto ourselves the Lord Jesus. You know, it's illustrative for us, whether you realize it or not, monthly. Do you know when? Whenever you sit there and partake of the Lord's Supper, what are you doing? You're receiving the Lord Jesus. In the emblems, the cup and the loaf, what is that? It's the Lord Jesus. It's the new covenant established in his blood. And Christ is being offered to us. And we eat, right? Bread and juice. We appropriate them physically and they become part of us. A picture of what? That it is through faith that we're actually receiving and feeding upon whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, whereby we are one with him. 
And our salvation from beginning to end, and namely our justification, rests in him alone. That's statement number four. Statement number five is this. We are sinning saints. Turn to chapter four, fifth verse. We are sinning saints. And to the one, says Paul, who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous, righteousness. In the middle of that phrase, God justifies whom? God justifies whom? Those who have their act together. Those who stop sinning. Those who've demonstrated they're really, really, really sincere. Those who've demonstrated that they're truly sorry. Who does God justify? The ungodly. In other words, the godless. He justifies the ungodly. Do you know what that means? This change in our legal status is not a change in us. The doctrine of justification does not change us. The doctrine of justification is an alteration in our legal status. The change in us is sanctification. We're not speaking of sanctification. Do you not find it interesting in Romans 8, in that golden chain of salvation, that Paul doesn't mention sanctification? Why not? Because he's dealing with the grounds of our acceptance with God. And the grounds of our acceptance with God is what God does in foreknowing us, predestinating us, calling us, justifying us, and glorifying us, which is, yes, the culmination of our sanctification. But our standing in God's sight and his acceptance of us does not, does not rest upon sanctification. It rests upon justification. He justifies the ungodly. Oh, you've heard it from me. I have lost count. Luther's dunghills. How many times, folks? Luther's dunghills. Never forget them. There they are dotting the German countryside. Unseemly, unsightly. What a stench reeking to the sky, right? These dunghills as these farmers dotted the countryside, the landscape, landscape with the manure from their, from their, from their animals. And then November comes, December comes. During the night, six, six inches of snow fall to the ground. And there Luther emerges from his home. And what does he behold? Countryside, blanketed with this white, pristine, pure snow. So that's justification. That's what I look like in the sight of God. What lies and lurks beneath the snow? The dunghills are still there. That is justification. We're not speaking of sanctification. We are speaking of the basis, the foundation for which God accepts us. Christ and Christ alone. He treats us as if we did what Christ did. And on that basis, he changes our judicial status standing before him. Oh, number six, quickly, here it is. Yes, good works follow justification. You can read the reference on your own back in chapter two. You can go to James two and discover the same thing. Yes, good works follow justification. They're not part of justification. They aren't even part of the faith by which we are justified. They are the fruit. The flower on the bush, the grapes on the vine, the leaf on the tree, the ear on the stalk, none of them give life. 
fruit does not give life. Fruit testifies to life. Good works, yes, follow justification. Lastly, number seven, justification is a great source, the greatest source of joy and peace. Look at chapter five, the first couple of verses. I hope you have these ones memorized. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What does he mean by by? Say it. Through faith. Justified through faith. That's the instrument by which we receive the Lord Jesus. What do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's the fifth link in the chain? Glorification. The fourth link? Justification. That having been justified by God himself and experienced this alteration in our legal standing before him, we know we have peace with him. Oh, we're filled with joy as we consider what he has done for us. And we hope we have a certain confident expectation of what? Glorification, the hope of glory. Why? Because those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's what I want to do pastorally. You don't think I've been very pastoral to this point. I think I have. Now I'm going to get very pastoral. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, and I'm going to get personal here. And I'm going to share with you um, how I make use of this doctrine, how I make use of justification. Let me word it slightly different. How I exhort myself in the light of this truth and make practical use of it daily. Why are you doing this, Steve? I'm doing this for the following reason, because I'm hazarding the guess that many of us most of us don't do this. And it can create for us a perpetual stumbling block. It can create for us a perpetual cause of despair. Why? Because you know as well as I do, tomorrow your eyes get shifted off of Christ and put where? On yourself. And down you go. The doctrine of justification breaks, if you like, the backbone of this helplessness, hopelessness, and despair. But it must be applied. You must live in it daily. So let me just share with you how I do this. Four ways. Here we go. Number one. I've never actually expressed them quite in these words, but as I was thinking on it this past week, and, and the phrases I normally used, I came up with these four and molded them and condensed them and shaped them. Here they go. Num here we go. Number one. Return to justification repeatedly. Return to justification repeatedly. You need and I need to hear it over and over and over again. Because we find it so difficult to believe. Which is my next point. We must believe it over and over and over again. Repetition. The athlete gets good at his sport. How? Endless hours of repetition. The writer gets good. How? Endless hours of writing, honing his, her craft. This truth begins to seep in and shapes us and takes hold of us. How? 
Repetition, repetition, repetition. Return to justification repeatedly. I've given you the seven points. I've given you just about everything you need to know in regards to this doctrine. Make those seven points part of your spiritual feeding, nourishment weekly, daily. Number two, keep the focus on Christ. Please, keep the focus on Christ. Rather than filling our minds with fear, worry, regret, and shame, we need to fill them with Christ. Set our minds on things above. He who dwells above. We live continually. Oh, we must live continually in the sight of Christ's infinite merit. Number three, confess sin without delay. Am I guilty enough? Don't do that. Am I sorry enough? Don't do that either. Have I shed enough tears? Am I, am I really, really, really sorry this time? No, 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 no. You keep a short record and a short account of God. And you go to him in whatever condition, whatever state you are in daily, and you confess every time you fail, no matter how many times it is. And you bring before him your sin, and you bring it before this doctrine of justification. And you bring it before the love of God poured out in Christ Jesus upon Calvary's cross. You bring it before his physical suffering and the anguish of his soul, and you confess it. And if you fail again tomorrow, guess what? You confess it. If you fail again the next day, guess what? I don't have anything more for you, brothers and sisters. You confess it. And if you fail it again seven days after that, guess what? It really is basic, simple. You confess it. Oh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. Bring them to the cross. Yes, seek to have your heart broken before the cross and the love of God poured out in Christ Jesus. But do not delay. Do not let things pile up. Do not wait these days and weeks and years. And you've just got this burden now the size of the world on your shoulders. No, confess it whenever you sin. And confess regularly before God, pleading that verse and recognizing your judicial sentence does not depend on how well you've done today. This judicial reckoning does not depend, oh, praise God. You know, friends, it doesn't depend on how you're feeling today. Amen. It depends on this unalterable fact that God now treats you as if you did what Christ did. Here's number four, obey. Yes, seek to obey, of course. But do so in the light of Christ's obeying. Do so in the light of Christ's obeying. You don't need to pray perfectly. You don't need to serve perfectly. You don't need to worship perfectly. All God calls us to is sincerity. He has freed us not to perfection. That is the consummation we are waiting for. He has freed us to wage war with our sin. That is it. Engage in the daily battle. But seek to obey, not seeking perfection, but recognizing the perfection that is in the Lord Jesus and in sincerity of heart, seeking to know and do his will. Oh, we must immerse ourselves in the blessings of Christ. We must contemplate our standing with Christ. Here, I'm getting very personal. When I think of my sin, what do I do? I think of Christ's forgiveness. 
When I think of my guilt, what do I do? I remember Christ's merit. When I think of my weakness, what do I do? I remember Christ's strength. When I think of my pride, what do I do? I remember Christ's humility. When I think of my failures, what do I do? I think of his sufferings. When I think of my needs, oh, I remember his fullness. When I think of the temptations I face, I remember his tenderness. And when I think of my vileness, I remember his righteousness. Thomas Wilcox preached it to me years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I want to share it with you as we conclude this day. It's in the sermon notes. Take it away and memorize it. Christ's infinite satisfaction must be your justification before God. Oh, never forget it. Christ's infinite satisfaction must be, can only be, your, my justification before God. Our God and glory above, we do praise you for the gospel, for the many wonders we behold in it, namely, your compassion and tenderness and loving kindness towards sinners such as us. And we praise you for the Lord Jesus, the one who is your eternal delight, over whom you proclaim, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And be so thankful that as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we find ourselves accepted by you in Christ. You accept us in Christ. You love us in Christ. You're pleased with us in Christ. You justify us in Christ. You see us in Christ. That he who is the apple of your eye is the one in whom we stand, and therefore we come before you confidently and boldly, and we stand upon grace, your matchless, wonderful grace. Pray, our Father, you would impress these truths upon us this day. Pray, our Father, for any unbelievers in our midst that you might use these truths to break their hearts. Show them their sin. Show them their lost condition. Show them the danger they face if they enter eternity outside of Christ. Show them above all else the wonders of your love in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.